This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. This is a deeply, deeply religious group of girls who ultimately, regardless of the decision they made, marry, not marry, believed with their faith that they would make it home. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Aisha Sasei is a journalist and author who wrote a book called Beneath the Tamarind Tree about the mass kidnapping of more than 200 teenage girls in northern Nigeria in 2014. That started the international movement called Bring Back Our Girls. The terrorist group Boko Haram is responsible, and almost half of the young women are still unaccounted for. Aisha spoke to some of those who escaped set the scene for where we are in Nigeria and what it's like for the people who live in the village, not just the young women. This story broke in April 2014. So first and foremost, we're talking about a time where, let's just set the scene atmospherically. It was hot, it was dry. We're talking about northeastern Nigeria, which is well known for being much poorer than, you know, the rest of Nigeria. They've not had the same amount of resources pumped into it. So we're talking about an area that is resource deprived, where people are farmers. They're making ends meet day to day. They're making choices about who to send to school. This is a part of the world that has the largest out-of-school population in the world, over 13 million children, the majority of whom are, are girls. So this is a farming community. It is a poor community, but it is also a loving community, which is something that is often maybe minimized in the sense that people have lots of children. They live as a community. They love on their children. They do the best they can. They share what they have with their neighbors. It is a deeply religious community, the community of Chibok. And, you know, they are poor, but they have great spirit. Nigeria in and of itself as a country moving outside of Chibok in the Northeast. And let's talk about um, Abuja, the seat of government at this point in time has good luck. Jonathan as a president, a man who has been assailed for not being a strong leader. And the country is dealing with increasing attacks from Boko Haram, religious extremists that have been terrorizing the country since the late 90s. 
And so there's a lot going on and there's a lot bubbling. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of instability in the North. And there's a lot of looking at the central government to do more, to do more to keep people safe. Tell me about Nigeria's relationship with the United States at this point. Does America even care what's happening with these girls? The U.S. government has always cared about what happens in Nigeria because it goes back and forth between Nigeria and South Africa, the largest economy on the continent. There's also a quite robust trade relationship between the two. The U.S. does export a huge amount to to Nigeria. It's also a large donor to Nigeria, a large aid donor. Nigeria itself exports animal feed and, and things like that to the U.S. So, so they care. They also care because Nigeria has a very robust military and they're aware of extremism on the rise on the continent. And there's always a concern that if any extremist group takes hold or gains a footing, they may use it to plan attacks that could ultimately imperil the U.S. And of course, we'd seen a Nigerian involved in a terrorist attack with an attempt to bring down a plane over Detroit many years back. So it was on the radar. Tell me what Boko Haram up until this point has been doing. What are the terrorist acts? What's the intimidation that is happening in this section of Nigeria? It is mass attacks on schools and villages. It is fighters riding in on motorbikes with guns. It is setting fire to buildings. It is bank raids. It is attacking schools. Um, One of the central tenants has been, you know, Western education is bad and specifically targeting um, schools that educate girls. And, you know, if the schools aren't completely set alight, students injured or, or killed, sadly, it is to impart the message to the girls that they find there, go home and get married, do not be in school. So it is utter terror. Um, At this point in 2014, dozens and dozens of schools are closed. Um, Teachers are too afraid to be in classrooms. Schools have been set alight. I mean, it is just utter, utter mayhem. And they're literally just taking more and more control of parts of northeastern Nigeria with the intention of building a caliphate, an Islamic state. That's what I was going to ask. I know it's a really simple question, but what do they want? To suppress all other religions and to suppress other societies? Boko Haram is a complicated one because when Boko Haram started, Muhammad Yusuf, the founder of Boko Haram, when he started it, you could argue it was as a political resistance to what he saw as abject greed, malfeasance, corruption amongst the elites in Nigeria, and also a sense that the North, which is predominantly Muslim, in contrast to the predominantly Christian South, was being ignored. And instead, people were enriching themselves. And there was this moral decay. So it started in some sense as a kind of resistance to that, but then became increasingly militarized and weaponized for a number of reasons, some of which actually involves local politicians using them as a kind of force to kind of target enemies or rivals. It's always the way when they try and clamp down, it's already kind of metastasized into something else. And then Muhammad Yusuf became increasingly militant and increasingly with a view that what would fix all of this decay would be Islam. That's what they need. They need more Sharia. If we have more Sharia Islamic law, a lot of this stuff wouldn't be happening. And it just became more and more hardened. The government tried to tamp down on them. Then they had this running battle. Yusuf was killed. Yusuf was really murdered in detention. With his death, it set the stage for their their new leader. So he takes hold. 
And with that, the organization now becomes this extremist terrorist force that is now launching mass attacks in multiple places at the same time. How had this affected this village up until this point, up until 2014? Is it fairly insulated or are they living in terror? Where is it? I mean, everywhere is living in terror. Okay. Everywhere is terrorized. Everywhere is unstable. Everywhere is seeing attacks in and around the area. Chibok is a small town in the Northeast, but surrounding towns were being attacked. It's in Borno State, which is actually the birthplace of Boko Haram. The thing about Chibok, which is always interesting, as I spoke to parents about what happened, is that even though there were attacks in and around Chibok, the state capital, Maduguri, which is where Muhammad Yusuf was from and where Bukharam was actually born, had been attacked countless times. They felt safe. They were still sending their kids to school. They, in some cases, made decisions to take their kids out of other schools in other parts of the state and bring them to Chibok because they thought they'd be safe in Chibok. And I've spoken to parents and, and said, you never thought anything would happen? No, they didn't. I think it's important to say that the day that Bukharam swept into Chibok, scooping up the 276 girls was a day like every other day. Parents went to the farm, they farmed, they brought back fresh produce, they cooked, their, their daughters were in the government boarding school. And it was pretty straightforward. If you speak to the girls themselves, they finished lessons, they went back to the dorm, some sat outside and watched others play. Some of the girls were in dorm rooms studying because this took place at a time when they were preparing for benchmark exams, end of high school exams. But, you know, it was just a normal time because the majority of schools had closed. There had been heightened security in and around the school because of the threat of Boko Haram. But the governor of Borno State had decided that they would keep the school open so these exams could take place. They put a little bit more security around the school and the girls would get up every day. They would take these exams and come back to their dorms. So they shared snacks. They joked. Some were sleeping outside because it was really hot. They were goofing off. They were charging their phones. They were being teenage girls. Just before midnight, some of the girls were back in their dorms you know, falling asleep. And what they heard was this sudden explosion of gunfire, which they couldn't quite make sense of because the town is less than half an hour away from the school, that they could hear it quite clearly. Plus it was summer, it was dry, the air was thin, it, the sound traveled. They didn't quite know what was going on. But for the girls, the question that they had, and, and this is one of the things that I, I've always been struck by, was this debate that sprung up amongst them as to whether they should run that they should flee the school or they should wait until teachers turn up to tell them what to do. And so there was this massive conversation in various dorms taking place. Some girls were packing bags, some girls were praying, but there was just this fear. What is going on? We don't know what's happening. Some called parents and by and large, the girls decided that they would stay and wait until teachers came to tell them they should run or told them what to do. Teachers who never turned up because the few teachers who were there to actually supervise the examinations had basically melted away into the dark when they too heard the gunfire. So there had not been some sort of a emergency plan like you would with elementary school students and tornadoes here in the United States. There was nothing set up. That's interesting. You have to put it in the context for where 
this took place in a place of, you know, limited resources in a place where schools are doing the bare minimum, you know, they're doing the best they can. And that sense of duty of care, I I don't think it had been thought through. I think the way they looked at it was their security here. And so if anything happens, the security guards will deal with it. But there wasn't a, a protocol. In fact, what had happened And this worsened the situation, which I've always found really saddening, is before April 14th and 2014, when Boko Haram stormed the school, there had been a number of incidents that had frightened the girls. They thought they saw someone on the school grounds. They thought that there had been intruders. Girls had run off on those two occasions, actually, and there had been pandemonium. They were gathered at school assembly days later and warned You must not run if anything happens. You must wait until the teachers come. You must not just give in to your fears. You are going to be fine. So they'd almost been conditioned to say, if something happens, this is what we must do. We must just sit tight and someone will tell us what comes next. So this is a little bit of an aside, but what would a terrorism expert say would have been the best thing for them to do, knowing what then happened, that they were taken? Would it have been better in the situation for them to run, or did they simply do the right thing? I would assume that what the terrorism expert would say is, like in any instance of you know securing buildings or planes or environments with vulnerable groups, is you protect the space so that the threat never enters the space to begin with, have a security perimeter that cannot be breached. In the event of the perimeter being breached, have an emergency contact that could be triggered so that help could come to you. You fleeing into the dark, not being sure of what you're running to, presents a whole other set of problems. Right. But the thing is, there was no security perimeter. There was a, a wall that surrounded the school with an old man who sat at the gate and fell asleep. There were two other like old security guards who sat on a stool and nodded off. And they were no match for a force of hundreds of young men riding in with guns on motorbikes. So the girls are hiding, staying inside the building. The teachers who presumably could have helped were gone. At least brought some guidance. Comfort. Comfort, anything. So they're gone. The security guards sound like they're useless. These men come in. What happens? So at first, a guy on a bike turns up and some of the girls are outside. Some are, you know, in in the various dorm rooms. He comes in, he is dressed in Nigerian military fatigues, kind of circles the compound, eyeing the state of play, pulls out, and then more come in. And really, the the first conversation they have, or the the first exchange with a handful of these men, basically tells them, don't worry, we're the Nigerian military. We're here to protect you. Just do what we say. Everything's going to be fine. The girls don't think it's true. Some want to believe it's true. But some of the girls I've spoken to say, things just didn't seem right going from what they were wearing. Some were in flip-flops. Some just looked tattered. Some had water bottles tied on string. So inconsistent. You know, even to young girls who aren't au fait with what security and military should look like, just something was off. And then moments later, 
they just start seeing more of them stream in and things move to a point where they basically say who they are, that they are Boko Haram and they've been telling them not to be in school and now they are here. But the thing that I, I want to stress, you know, as we set the stage of what happened and, and the storming of the school and the girls thinking that it was people here to protect them and then realizing that they now may be captives, even at that stage, they weren't entirely certain of the scale of the threat because Boko Haram said to them, where are the boys? And what Boko Haram was known for was targeting boys in schools. They would find them, they would kill them. Sadly, they would hack them to death. They would set them on fire. Just brutality aimed at boys. And often, if they found girls, they would say, go home and get married. Hmm. So for the girls... They thought, okay, well, this is bad, but what's probably going to happen is they're just going to send us home. So the Bukharam asks, where are the boys? The girls say, there are no boys. The boys who do come to the school, which is, you know, the, the Chigbok government girls' school, are day students. They only come during the day. There are no boys here. Boko Haram said, we don't believe you. They start going through the buildings looking for boys. Now told the girls, sit down under a tree. The girls are just freaked out. These guys are now going through the school. They then say, where's the store with all your food items? They get two girls to walk them over to the store. They bust the door open. They clear it out of everything that's in there, the rice, the potatoes, the whatever, the pasta, everything. And this is the point that I always want to make to people about the story. I believe this was a crime of convenience. It was an opportunity because they came looking for boys. Hmm. They came looking to loot the school. But then they realized there were no teachers there and there was nobody to protect the girls and nobody to stop them from taking them. And the girls, several of the girls have said to me, they heard a conversation between some of the Boko Haram members saying, well, what should we do with them? And some of them said, well, let's just put them in the building and set fire to them. And so there's this debate going on. Well, what should we do? Should we put them in a the building? Because they didn't come with the vehicles to cart them off. It tells you they didn't plan it. This is a group that is going around collecting boys as they go through towns and villages. The New York Times did a great piece on the boys of Boko Haram, talking about these boys that they brainwash and they, they radicalize. So we're talking about boys in some cases, teens that are matured through the ranks of Boko Haram. So had there been violence against women specifically before this happened? Yes. Were there sexual, sexual assaults? Was yes. this part of their plan? Bukharam had kidnapped women and girls before. What was striking about this was they never carted off nearly 300 of them, 276 to be precise. Was that everyone at the school, all the girls in the school? or That was all the girls who were there to take exams. How is that even physically possible? I mean, you corral them all, I guess, with weapons. Yeah, of course. So they were setting fire to buildings. So the girls are now watching buildings burn. And they're hearing these conversations around, well, we should just burn them. One of the commanders basically says, no, we'll take them with us. But they don't have vehicles to take 276 girls. So what they do is, while the buildings are burning, they say, up, 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 everybody up everybody out. They're pointing their guns. They're saying, if you have a cell phone, throw it away. If you're caught with a cell phone, we'll shoot you. Let's go. I've talked to girls who had no shoes on. They were walking in their bare feet and they just set them up on this march, this long march into the forest.
and they just set them up on this march, this long march into the forest. They walk some part of the way and then vehicles turn up, which they've stolen from a local like lorry park. So it just, again, shows that they didn't come with a plan. How terrifying. And how did the families find out about this? Are they are the girls scheduled to come home at a certain point? The teachers, the teachers say something, I'm assuming. No, actually, it's worse than that, because when they disappeared that night, when they marched them off into the darkness and set fire to the school, a lot of the parents who had fled their own homes in Chibok town had fled to a hill, a stone hill where they were hiding. And so one of the parents told me that she was on the hill with her husband and they could see the school burning. And this is a particularly tragic story because this particular family, because it was exam season, they had taken their daughter's cell phone from her so she would concentrate on her studies. So they had no way of reaching her. There was a relative who worked at the school who was supposed to be on the premises as part of this coterie of teachers protecting and guiding, supervising the exams. They called the relative, no response. They're up on a hill, they see the school burning. And so they hear the vehicles pulling out. They rush down from the hill and run to the school and find it deserted. What do you do next as a parent? You go to the local government? Is there a police force? You wail and you weep and you fall to bits. And the community wails and weeps beside you. And military and police are dribbling in. You're asking, where's my daughter? And their guess is as good as yours because they too had melted away into the dark when Boko Haram hit the town. In the case of several families, you stand in the blazing sun waiting and hoping as you see some girls start to come back. Some girls who's broken away because the thing to say is 276 girls were scooped up But as they moved into the forest on foot and then eventually in vehicles, 57 escaped. Wow. Snuck off. At moments, they snuck off. And so you're starting to see some of these girls come back and you're hoping that your child will be the next to reappear. Sounds like a school shooting. Exactly. So these young men with Boko Haram now have captives around 200. Is there a headquarters? Where do they take them? Is there a plan? There's no plan. No, I mean, you know, now they've got 219 girls and they take them for days. They're traveling in this convoy of vehicles, open back vehicles and a massive almost like dumpster truck that they've got dozens and dozens of them in sitting on each other, sitting on top of the food they'd looted from the building. The girls are crowded in. They're going deeper and deeper as the vegetation thickens in Sambisa Forest. They're getting scratched by these branches that are closing in. They're hearing these strange sounds. This is a kind of a no-go space. It used to be actually a national park with lots of wild animals roaming through it. And for days, they are just traveling. At one point, they stop and, and tell the girls that the older girls amongst them should take some of this food and cook to feed the group. And while they're doing that cooking and the men are praying, it's at that point some girls snuck off on one of these stops, when the guys came back from prayers, the guys were suddenly struck by the numbers that something wasn't quite right. And they're like, let's count you. Some girls are missing. Where are they? 
this starts a whole escalating situation, which is only broken by the fact that they hear people approaching. And what had happened is you asked what the parents were doing. Some of the fathers had decided that they were going to go into the forest to look for their, their daughters themselves with bows and arrows and machetes. So they hear the voices. The men are like, well, okay, we can't you know, get into this about who's missing. They just round them back up, stick them back in the vehicles and say, let's keep going. About three days later, they arrive at this camp, which is, you know, Boko Haram hideout deep in Sambisa forest. It's more kind of reeds, like it's the savannah. It's dry. We're moving to, towards the Sahel. So we're, we're kind of moving into that kind of ready, brown, parched, burnt, those colors. And they see these shacks, these lean-tos dotting the landscape. And they say to the girls, everybody out of the truck and go under that tree. And the girls are thinking, what what do they mean, go under that tree? And, you know, 219 cramped and tired and distraught climb out. And then they realize it's this massive tamarind tree with hooked branches and laden with leaves and fruit and drooping to the ground. And they're asking them to basically part the branches and go into the space. What a visual. And that's the name of the book, Beneath the Tamarind Tree. Mm. So they're going in with the expectation of what, staying hidden? Yes, that's exactly what the expectation is. In Shakao, the, the, the leader who took Muhammad Yusuf's place in 2009, Abu Bakr Shakao was well aware of the boon of having these girls because he had seen the press that had sprung up around these girls being taken. Celebrities were tweeting about it. What do you do? You hold them close. You hide them. Were there demands? Was this a ransom situation? What was going to be the end game with holding all of these young women? I think with Shakal, being the fact that everything we've ever seen of him presents a man who's unhinged, but who wanted to send the message and who also, must be said, spoke to the fact that the Nigerian government had taken into custody the wives and children of Boko Haram members in the past and had also obviously taken into custody a lot of Bukharam fighters. We see how it was a barter. I mean, that's eventually how it played out years later. But yes, and ultimately money. At that point, I think it was just they had the spoils. I'm assuming the girls are saying, hopefully sane by saying to themselves, this has to end at some point. Does it end at some point? I mean, they were taken April 14, 2014. In the weeks that followed, the girls mount many acts of rebellion against their captors. For First of all, the whole time they're demanding, when can we go home? The Shakao is not there. They've got these various commanders. And they're basically saying, we'll let you go home soon. But first and foremost, what was really important to Boko Haram was to convert them to Islam because Chibok is a Christian town in the majority Muslim north. Almost immediately, there's an issue of conversions and starting these Islamic classes for the girls. So that's one of the first things that happens. They, they bring them notebooks and say, you have to start taking Islamic classes. And the girls aren't doing anything. They take Islamic classes and then, then they sit around. And as acts of rebellion, they say things like, we're not going to bathe. We are just not going to do it. And then my favorite story they tell is one night when it starts to rain as the weeks go by, they start screaming through the night and the men turn up and they go, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? And they're just screaming to terrorize them because they're cold, they're aggravated, they want out and they're just screaming, all of them. 
bloody murder. They're like, we're going to just keep everybody awake. And they have these small acts of rebellion, which I just think are remarkable for these girls who have lived in a culture that has infantilized them and silenced them by virtue of being girls in a part of the world that is still governed by very conservative patriarchal norms. Were they not scared of some sort of physical repercussions for them? I spent time speaking to girls who were part of the first group of 21 who were eventually released in 2016. And at that point, there were beatings when some people tried to escape. There was a lot of threats. But I will also say, it seems to me, when you just look at it, Shakao was just very aware of the fact that the prize was in keeping them safe. At that point, they're not trying to harm them or marry them off or violate them. Because they want to trade them. They want to trade them. Are they actively working with the Nigerian government? One is never sure who in positions of power is a supporter of Boko Haram. That's the allegation that has long been made and that those forces may have scuppered an attempt to to form a deal to get the girls released. And Boko Haram eventually moves them through the forest to, to different locations. And what ends up happening, the real threat or another layer of threat starts when they move them from the tree, move them to another settlement, and the Nigerian government starts to bomb the forest as part of their efforts to win the war, and girls are injured. In fact, some of the girls right now, I can tell you because some of them are in a school in northeastern Nigeria, are missing limbs or have shrapnel still embedded in their body from these aerial attacks. And this went from a couple of weeks and acts of rebellion to several years for at least this group that you had access to. What are the stages that they went through, do you think? Is there an acceptance at some point just saying, I'm in this situation, I have to make the best of it? Or are they in a constant state of, how can I get out? How can I leave? How do I fight against this? I think it's all of those things at once, and it depends on the day. I think that When they eventually get to a place where they start pressuring them to quote unquote marry, Mm. those girls who made that decision just thought it was the best thing for them. I mean, one of the arguments that was made by this old guardian that was stationed with them was that if you get married, then you can get home sooner because then that will just, your husband could let you go. Like they could do a deal and you could go and your life's going to be easier if you get married. And so some of those girls made that calculation. It's not marriage, it's sexual slavery. But if they agree to accepting one of their captors, that it would be a better way to survive this. Some girls said, absolutely not. I refuse to do that. And I spoke to several girls who maintained that they would not marry. And they became this coterie of holdouts that, interesting enough, never judged the others for making the decision to marry. They just decided they just refused to do that. And the the key part of all of this, I think, and this applies to even those who decided to accept one of their captors. Again, there's no volition here, but is that this is a deeply, deeply religious group of girls. And so faith becomes an act of rebellion when they're in the forest and they have these secret prayer meetings, which were at one point discovered by their captors who warned them they must never do such a thing because this is now their Christianity on display. But they would meet in the dark and they would sing these, these hymns and they would pray and tell each other that they would be delivered. Sounds a bit like American slavery, right? Exactly, exactly. 
Tell me the way that this progresses. Is it 2016 where a group is released? Mm -hmm. Is that what happened? Tell me kind of what happens there. To date, 112 girls are still unaccounted for. So just to be clear that we're talking about 100 girls who have never returned. But for the first 21, suddenly they're being asked to move again. But this time now, they're traveling for days when they finally stop. They're suddenly approached by a man in white and these other individuals, others, other Boko Haram fighters who suddenly asks who has a piece of paper and a pen and just starts picking. And what we know from the outside is that there had been a attempt involving Swiss negotiators and what they had negotiated was an initial release of 20 girls as a good faith gesture that they could actually do a deal for the rest eventually. And so it was 20. And then they decided as a gift, they would give an extra girl. So that's how it became 21 girls. And I know the story from some of the girls who were chosen and released. The thing I always ask people is to imagine suddenly 21 are leaving and the rest are staying and everybody's crying. Yeah. Everybody's crying. It must have been almost just as difficult. Absolutely. How did they choose the 21? Randomly. You know, as some people of faith would say, myself included, if it's your time, it's your time. Like just randomly, no rhyme or, or reason. Suddenly they were loaded up in vehicles and being driven again for days and they had no idea what was happening. And then they actually chose one girl who they asked to walk with a coterie of soldiers to the meeting spot and left the others behind. It's a kind of insurance. And she went on ahead and then met the negotiators. I find it interesting that it seems so important to Boko Haram to demonstrate with this one girl, Priscilla, that they hadn't been harmed while they were in captivity. And I have pictures of the girls when they're finally free in a safe space, having cookies and you can see their emaciated state and you can see the bedraggled and just worn out by two years in captivity. But again, for context, this is only 21 girls, 219 disappeared into the forest and 112 are still missing. How did the remainder minus the 112 end up back out? Similarly, they did another deal. But this time, what we know is money was exchanged. Fighters who had been held captive were were released in exchange for these girls. And, And the thing about the story and what it says about Nigeria is the politicization of everything and the commodification of girls' lives. Part of the issue here is that the Nigerian government right at the beginning when this happened in April of 2014, refused to believe that anything had happened. There was this resistance that such a thing could have happened. And then even when there was the the knowledge that something terrible had happened, the sense, and I have said this publicly and I continue to say it and continue to lambast them for it, I think there was just generally the sense of, okay, well, yeah, this really is shitty, but it's a bunch of girls. But that's not what the reaction was on social media, which I thought was really interesting. What do you think happened there? It was a phenomenon. It was a huge miscalculation on the part of the government. I mean, I think the Nigerian government literally thought they're not just girls. They're poor girls. Hmm. These were poor parents, uneducated. They didn't know what to do. So the Nigerian government just thought this story is just going to die. Nothing's going to happen. Nobody's going to know about it or even talk about it. More collateral damage. Exactly. Exactly. 
now there are, you said about 112 that are still out there. Is there an effort to get them back? What's happening now? I mean, we're talking seven years later at this point. I mean, so the the thing to say about Nigeria right now is, and Nigerians would accept this if they were being honest, those who choose to be honest or objective rather. The country is besieged by a multitude of issues, not just the Boko Haram problem that remains as prevalent as ever in the Northeast, but this rise in kidnappings for ransom in the Northwest that is happening, that we're seeing school children. I mean, to the point now where you can't even really keep up with how many children are being swept up for ransom. The middle belt of Nigeria is dealing with cattle herders and pastoralists battle over grazing rights that is leading to mass violence in in farming and herding communities. And what COVID has done to the economy has just left the country teetering. So the notion that these missing girls who were already devalued right at the beginning in 2014 are somehow top of mind for Nigerian officials, I I think it would be fair to say that's a stretch. Do you think that your background, your mother is from there? Yeah, my mother's from there. My father's from there. I was born in England. I spent my formative years in Sierra Leone from 7 to 16. I consider it to be home. I'm many things, but I'm African first. Did this make your reporting easier or harder? Because I know you went to Nigeria when this really was developing. It made it more focused for me. The fact that I'm African, the fact that I'm an African female, the fact that I come from a family that prizes education so greatly, the fact that my mother was raised in a home of mega means, comes from a place that is not dissimilar from Chibok, barely any running water and, and electricity, and was able to transform her life by the power of education and give me the gift of education, which allows me to be sitting here and speaking to you. The story meant so much to me in so many ways. It certainly made it harder for the Nigerian government who felt that as an African and as an African female, it was not my place to speak so boldly. I think there were things that I said, which to this day continues to rankle Nigerians, which I just don't think would have bothered them if it had come from the mouths of a white male or a white female. Criticisms, I'm assuming. Yeah, criticisms. A Nigerian spokesman did say to me on the air at one point, listen, sweetheart. What is this story about? What does it boil down to for you? It boils down to poverty and gender. It boils down to a sense that if you are poor and you're female, your life does not matter. It just shows how expendable life can be in certain parts of the world. And that continues to trouble me to this day. And the compact between governments and their citizenry is broken in far too many places in in Africa and in the developing world. And you could argue right here you know, in the United States. If they had been daughters from wealthy families, that might have even undercut the fact that they were female. But let's just go with wealth. It would have been a completely different outcome to the story. This story to me is also so much, if you look at the girls, about endurance mm-hmm. and survival. And resilience. And community. Community and sisterhood. And one of the girls who escaped and was, wasn't held captive, she was taken, but she escaped in the hours afterwards, is in school here in the United States. And I speak to her almost every week. She is studying liberal arts and wants to use her voice to be 
a reformer and an advocate for other girls. The fact that when April 14th comes around, this girl here in the United States and the others who all consider themselves to be sisters still weep and pray and pine for those who have not returned just speaks of the bond of sisterhood that endures. What is your hope with this story? Is it as simple as we want 112 back? You know, the truth is we have 112 girls, young women now. They're not even girls. They're young women. Let's start there. I want 112 of them to be accounted for, those who can return to be returned to their families. And I want girls and schools to be protected. I want the education of girls to be valued. That's what I want. I want accountability and I want justice for them. On the next episode of Wicked Words. All of these were done on weekends. Two of them were on holiday weekends. One was Columbus Day, one was Labor Day. There's parts of this story that we start to see a more complete picture. This was a person who was conscientious enough. They didn't take time off work to go kill. They did it in their leisure time. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 